everybody. Good morning. Uh, really glad that you're here. Uh, welcome those of you over in East Hall, those of you tuning in. Uh, welcome everyone here to Christ Community Chapel. Uh, we have a theme for the year, and our theme is transformed in 2018. And the idea is we want to be different in a good way at the end of the year than we are right now. And we're all going to be different. Every single one of us will be different, physically and spiritually. Every person here will either be closer to God in December or further away from God in December. And I want us to be closer to God. I want to be closer to God. So every one of our series this year has to do with changing, transforming. Uh, We completed our series, The Cross Changes Everything, at Easter, and oh man, I loved Easter, always do. I love being together, I love the celebration, all of it. And then we started this series, which we're calling Freedom to Change. Because sometimes, it seems like there's, there's too much to change. You, you see somebody who's got it all together, or they, they're really close to God, and you think, I, I don't know how to, I can't get there from here. So we decided to do this series where we're looking at different people in the Bible who had a ton to change. And then they came face-to-face with Jesus, and they were radically transformed. Last week, Sam Alberry kicked us off with the story of the the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Oh, and if you haven't seen uh, Sam's presentation last Sunday night that he had on Jesus, sexuality, and the good news, uh, it's on our website under special events. It is worth uh, the time. It is a great, great presentation, uh, complete with the Q&A. Really, really good. But Sam did the Samaritan woman. And uh, the Samaritan woman, if you remember, she had five husbands, and the man that she was living with was not her husband. She must have felt like um, she had too much baggage, too much sin. I heard her described this week as somebody who was trading sex for rent. Right? And she must have thought that if she ever got close enough to see God's face, then his face would be filled with disappointment and condemnation for the decisions that she had made and for the life that she had lived. But then she got close enough to see the face of Jesus. And in his, in his face, instead of condemnation, she saw forgiveness. Instead of disappointment, she saw deep, deep affection. And she was never the same. Today I want to look at the disciple Thomas, and I am calling this message Too Much Doubt. Too Much Doubt. Thomas uh, is one of the original 12 disciples, most famous for uh, not being in the room when Jesus appeared to the rest of the disciples. The Sunday that Jesus resurrected, that Sunday evening, he came into a room with all the other disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. And these are the details, some of the details that we know. We know that they were in a room together, and many scholars believe it was the same upper room that they had been in for the Last Supper with Jesus. The door was locked. We have that detail, and we can assume that it was locked because they were scared to death, that the Roman authorities would be coming for them next and crucify them one by one like they had Jesus. So they locked the door. Thomas wasn't there. And it might be, because he was the only one with enough courage to be out and about rather than hiding out in the room. One of the things you need to know, though, is that uh, Jesus knew Thomas wasn't going to be there. It wasn't like 
Jesus appeared in that room and said, peace be unto you. Whoa, where's Thomas? Are you kidding me? He's not here? All right, I'll be back tomorrow when everybody's here because I don't want to go through this all over again, right? That's not, that's not what happened. Jesus knew Thomas wasn't going to be there, and he wanted us to learn something about ourselves through Thomas. So Thomas comes back, and all the disciples are pumped because they've seen Jesus, and Thomas doesn't believe them. Thomas doubts their story, and for that, he has been forever saddled with the nickname Doubting Thomas. Now, Thomas is mentioned in two other passages in the Gospel of John, and I want to go through those quickly, and then I want to dive in. Uh, The first passage is in John chapter 11, and what's happening in John chapter 11 is is Jesus has been spending time up in Galilee, which is north, uh, because uh, Jerusalem had gotten really hot, and there was kind of a standing uh, APB out on Jesus uh, to arrest him if he showed his face in Jerusalem. And uh, they just got word that Jesus' friend Lazarus was sick. And the disciples know that Lazarus lives in Bethany, and Bethany's just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And so uh, we pick up the story with that. This is John chapter 11, beginning at verse 5. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And then skipping to verse 16, So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. The next time we see Thomas is in John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, the disciples are on pins and needles because uh, everything's coming to a head. And Jesus has been talking about leaving them, and they have no idea what that means. And so Jesus says in John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the last passage where we see Thomas is the passage that he's famous for. And this is John chapter 20, beginning at verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my fingers into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, eight days, more than a week, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is God's word. And it's true. All right. 
So uh, for this message, you know, I usually have three points. For this message, I only have two points. Uh, but I have two sub-points beneath each one of those points, so I actually have four points. So I'm like living on the wild side today. <laughs> Here are my two points. It's very simple. Uh, the two points are, number one, what causes doubt? Number two, what cures doubt? What causes doubt? What cures doubt? My sub-points are equally as simple. What causes doubt? Something on the inside, something on the outside. What cures doubt? Something on the inside, something on the outside. Okay, first, what causes doubt? I should probably explain what I mean by doubt. I don't mean a curiosity that leads to a deeper understanding of your faith. I don't know who said it, but I read it a long time ago and it stuck with me. It was a quote, something like this, that in order for anyone to believe greatly, he must be willing to doubt greatly. I like that because it, it should encourage us with a certain curiosity to learn more and more about our faith. That's not the kind of doubt I'm talking about this morning. The kind of doubt I'm talking about this morning is the kind we call a crisis of faith, where a freshman heads off to college in the fall, and he was, was raised as a Christian, and he's a Christian, and he comes home for spring break and announces to his family, I no longer believe anything that I believed for the first 18 years of my life. Okay, that's a crisis of faith. Oh, I should tell you this too. This helped me as a dad. Uh, it was something that a professor told me when I was a student. He says there's, a, there's something that happens with second-generation Christians that you should be prepared for. A second-generation Christian is this. My, my parents are first-generation Christians, first people in, their, in e either of their families to come to know Jesus and accept Him as their Lord and Savior. Right? But I was raised uh, by them and I was raised as a second-generation Christian, not unlike my grandchildren, who are somewhere in Sunday school right now. And they are learning all the stories of the Bible, most importantly, the story of Jesus. And they are swallowing the tenets of our faith like big pieces of meat because they don't have the capacity to cut it up, chew it up, swallow it, and digest it for themselves right now, which means that at some point in their lives, they'll need to throw it up, cut it up, chew it up, and swallow it so it, their faith becomes their own. Now, that's the kind of curiosity, the doubt that is a curiosity that should drive us deeper into our faith, and that's what we want with our kids. That's why we want to be in an environment where it's easy for people to ask questions. We want to be a place uh, in our middle school, in our senior high, where we have... Uh, training on apologetics, where we talk about why we believe what we believe, where we have this partnership with Ravi Zacharias Ministries, all of that is so that we have people as they go through that, that it's a curious kind of doubt and not a crisis of faith. But when a 40-year-old walks away from his family and says, I don't know what I believe anymore, that's a different story. Why is that? Okay, what causes doubt? Something on the inside. Years ago, I saw a commercial. It was a brilliant commercial. It was a commercial for uh, Folgers Instant Coffee. And this is what they did. They, um, they like, had hidden cameras at a very, very expensive restaurant. And they showed a couple having just a magnificent meal. And at the end of the meal, they ordered dessert. And they ordered coffee with their dessert. But instead of the normal coffee that this restaurant served. Instead, they were served 
Folgers Instant Coffee. And then somebody came up to him afterwards and they said, hey, how was your meal? And they say, magnificent. They say, how was your coffee? And they say, it was wonderful. Best coffee we ever had. And then it goes Folgers, right? Brilliant. The reason it was brilliant is because um, psychologists talk about something called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive has to do with the way you think. Dissonance has to do with kind of a discord, something that doesn't fit, kind of a disharmony, and we don't like that. It's almost like notes on a piano. Hold on, I'll show you. Um, okay, so if you hear this, that's okay. You hear this, that's okay. You hear this, not okay. That's unpleasant uh, because it's discordant. Right? There's a disharmony. And your mind kind of does that with everything. You don't like things that, that don't fit. So with the coffee, the reason it was so brilliant is that here are this, here's this couple, and they had this, they know they were eating at an expensive restaurant. They had a magnificent meal. They knew that the coffee cost $5 each cup, and it was served in a silver container. Right? It'd be a whole different story if uh, the Folgers people came out with dessert, and then went, you know, poured hot water into it, and then just, you know, scooped in Folgers, said, here, they'd be going, I'm not even going to I'm not even going to drink that, right? The reason they did it is because what, what, what happened was the coffee is instant coffee, it's over here, but the, the meal and everything else is over here. So it caused kind of a, a discord. They didn't know what to think of that, so what they did was they pulled the coffee over here, right? And that stopped the dissonance. I, uh, one of the reasons that people have a crisis of faith that I've seen over the years is what I call cognitive dissonance. It's a difference between their lifestyle and their beliefs. So a college freshman goes off to school as a follower of Jesus. He believes this, and then he comes back at spring break, and he says, you know what? I no longer believe. I no longer believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. But if you had a hidden camera at school, what you'd find is, is that he began to live a lifestyle that was inconsistent with what he believed. So what he did was he pulled his beliefs over to his lifestyle, and he said, now, now this is what I believe, and I don't believe this anymore. Right? So I hear about a, a man who leaves his wife and his child, and he says, you know, I'm not sure if I believe anymore. And then I find out he's been having an affair for six months. Okay, this is true. This is true. You party enough, you're going to have a crisis of faith. You look at porn enough, you will have a crisis of faith. You love money enough, you're going to have a crisis of faith. You drink enough, you're going to have a crisis of faith. You smoke enough weed, you're going to have a crisis of faith. Right? Jesus said that. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other. You will cling to the one and despise the other. You cannot have two masters. It creates a discord. So you will pull your belief over to your lifestyle. That's the first reason. That people have a crisis of faith. That's something that happens on the inside. Then there's something that happens on the outside, and I think this is what happened to Thomas. I use this when I'm talking to uh, couples that are about to get married. Sometimes I use it in the wedding ceremony itself. 
And I'll tell them, you know, everybody, when they're about to get married, they have a certain expectation. You can't help it. You have a certain expectation of what married life is going to be like. And you think it's going to be great, otherwise you wouldn't be getting married. Right? So you have an expectation up here. And the first year of your marriage, you have reality. Right? And there's a gap between expectations and reality. And that gap has a name, and that name is called disappointment. Right? <laughs> and no matter how big that gap, that means that's how disappointed. This is what happens with people in God. Something happens that makes people disappointed with God. Thomas, willing to die with Jesus, but he wasn't prepared to be abandoned by Jesus. And that's what it felt like, and it was crushing. I remember uh, seeing an interview with Ted Turner, who is the founder of Turner Broadcasting, and he's a very outspoken atheist and always has been. Until I saw this interview, and the interview shocked me, because in the interview he said when he was a teenager, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He used those words. And then he decided, he said, I was going to become a minister because I thought there was no better way to spend my life than telling people about Jesus. And then his 16-year-old sister died of leukemia, and he became an atheist like that. Why? He was disappointed with God. It's pretty common, actually. People say, I thought God was going to be different. I thought God wouldn't let me down. And then this happened to my son or my daughter, or this happened with my marriage, or this happened with my job, or this happened with me. And I am so disappointed with God, I don't know if I can believe anymore. And some of you are probably close to that right now. So that's what causes doubt. Something on the inside, something on the outside. Now the question is, what cures doubt? Something on the inside, something on the outside. First, something on the inside. So there's this thing called cognitive dissonance, right, that that causes human beings to have this tendency to want to harmonize, to pull things together so they make sense so they, they're, not, they're not discordant. And cognitive dissonance can work both ways. It can be both the cause of doubt, and it can be the cure of doubt. And this is what I mean. So Sunday night, Sam Albury gives this talk on Jesus' sexuality and good news. And during that talk, he tells something of his own story. And he talks about when he was a teenager, like 13, 14, 15, he started to realize that he didn't respond to girls in the same way all his friends were responding to the girls. And by the time he was 17, he realized he was same-sex attracted, or what our culture calls gay. And he had decided that when he went to university the next year, he would explore that and try to kind of be sexually fulfilled in that way. But before he, headed, before he got to university, uh, somebody invited him to a church meeting, and he heard the gospel. And he gave his life to Jesus. And then this is what Sam said. He said, uh, I decided if I was going to follow Jesus, if I was going to follow him, I needed to find out what he said about what he says about my sexuality. And when I found out what he said about my sexuality, then I realized I had a choice between sexual fulfillment and following Jesus. And I decided to follow Jesus. He was all in. This is what's true. Every act of obedience 
can deepen your faith, will deepen your faith. If this is your heart, every act of disobedience will move you further away. It will, it will cause greater doubt because of the dissonance. Every act of obedience will move you deeper into your faith and into your understanding of your faith. And the, he said something that struck me, and, I, and I, I actually wrote it in my journal the next morning because it was um, convicting to me. Sam said, uh, and he was, he was quoting from, I think, Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says, if anyone is going to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then Sam said, if following Jesus never, ever feels like it's killing you, then chances are you're not following the Jesus of the Bible. And what he was saying is that sometimes there's going to be this feeling like if you obey, it's going to be so hard and so painful. But if you do that, then you deepen your faith. I, um, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is in Mark chapter 9. And it's become one of my favorite stories. There was a father who had a son. who was, The son was very sick and he comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, uh, if you can heal him, would you please heal him? And Jesus says, if I can. And then Jesus says, all things are possible for him who believes. And then this father said something that, that makes me love him. The father cries out and he says, I do believe. Help thou my unbelief. What he was saying, I, he was saying, I have faith, but I need more faith. That's me. That's you. I want to, by December, I want to have more faith than I have right now. But I quit praying. I, start, I was praying that. Help thou my unbelief. I believe, help thou my unbelief. But now I've, I've changed that. And now I'm praying, God, show me the next area that I'm to obey you. Because when I obey you, then I move toward faith, toward a deeper understanding of you and my own faith. In, uh, I think it's John chapter 15, Jesus says, uh, anyone who obeys my commandments will abide in my love. He's not saying that if you obey him, he will love you more. He's saying if you obey him, you will understand, you will experience, you will feel his love in a deeper way. That's what I want. So that's what I'm praying. That's something that happens on the inside. You want to cure doubt? Find an area of your life where you're resisting, where you're not obeying, and then obey. And you will find yourself decreasing doubt, increasing faith. That's something that happens on the inside. Then there's something that happens on the outside. It's what happens in uh, John chapter 20. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails... Place my finger into the mark of the nails. Place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I used to think that... Um, Jesus did that because he was calling Thomas's bluff. You know, Thomas goes off on the other disciples and he says, you know, unless I put my finger in his hand, put my hand in his side, I will never believe. 
And so Jesus shows up next time, and he calls that bluff. He goes, hey, Thomas, tough guy, come on. Put your finger here. Put your hand here. I don't think that's why. I started thinking about scars. I was going, why did Thomas say that? Why did Jesus invite him to touch his scars? What, what was it about scars? I mean, why didn't Thomas just say, unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I hear him call my name, I won't believe. I mean, if, if my dad had open-heart surgery and died from open-heart surgery, and then somebody comes to me and they say, hey, your dad's alive. I would never say, unless I see the scar on his chest. I would say, show me where he is. I just want to see him. I want to hear his voice. That just makes sense. So why scars? Uh, there's something uh, interesting about scars. Every scar tells a story. Every scar you have tells a story. I have a scar right here, right on my forehead. It came from a, a headbutt that I got in a YMCA in Charlotte, North Carolina when I was playing basketball. I zigged, the guy zagged, and we hit, right? And I got five stitches right there. That's the story. What's the story that Jesus' scars tell? This is the story. Jesus has scars in his hands and his side, not for something that he did, but for something you did, something I did, something Thomas did. You know, I, I wish I had a scar that I could show you that I got uh, doing something heroic, something sacrificial, something out of love for somebody else, and I could say, this is my scar. But I don't have one of those. But Jesus does. And Jesus looked at Thomas he said, Thomas, come here. Put your finger in this scar. Put your hand in this scar. My scars have a story. And the story is about you. And my love for you. What, what is Jesus doing? He's, he's closing the gap between of, of expectation and reality. He's saying, Thomas, I never abandoned you. I never quit loving you. No matter what happens in your life, no one will ever love you like this. No one will ever have a story for you like this. My scars for you. There's a cure for doubt. There's something on the inside. If you are doubting and there's something that's going on in your life where you know you are being disobedient, then you begin to change that, become obedient. You will find your doubts starting to evaporate and your faith starting to grow. Then there's something on the outside where Jesus scars. What, you know, he, he ends this passage in verse 29 by saying, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you. That's me. Blessed are those who have not put their hand in the scars but still believe that the story of Jesus' scars is for them. That's the second thing. We're going to have communion now. And I wanted to end with communion because um, communion actually is supposed to do both those things. When you uh, get the, the elements, the cup and the bread, you're supposed to examine yourself. That's what Scripture says. And what you're examining yourself for, those things in your life that might be discordant, that are causing a problem, a distance between you and God. And then you are supposed to think about 
what the elements mean, who Jesus is, what Jesus did, how Jesus sacrificed and loved you. And both those things are supposed to catapult you away from doubt and into faith. I want to be different by December than I am right now. I want all of us to be different. I want to believe more in December than I believe right now. I want you to believe more. And this is the way we do it together, transformed in 2018. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, we uh, come to you. And you are the author and the pioneer of our faith. You are the one who bears the scars even today that tell the story of your love for us. And I know there are some right now that, uh, for whatever reason, feel disappointed with you. And I pray that as we take communion, as we are reminded of what you have done and the depth of your love for us and your sacrifice for us and the story that your scars tell, that you will help us uh, to, to believe you like Thomas did and to believe your love and your grace. Thanks. We pray this in your blessed name.